0: If you're creating something from scratch, how do you decide on the best artistic medium to use? Also, how would you turn a life-threatening personal event into an art exhibition? We'll learn about this in today's episode. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. It's Ian Cleverdon here, and welcome to my audio podcast series designed to help anyone who's looking for inspiration to develop both personally and professionally. In this series, I focus on the creative arts. I'm catching up with musicians, artists, authors, actors, but also speaking to some in the directing and strategic management fields of this wide-ranging industry. All of my guests have been carefully chosen, as each one of them has a really interesting backstory from which we can all learn. Today's episode is the second of a two-part interview with artist, photographer and filmmaker Megan Powell if you've come to this episode first i highly recommend pausing here and going back and listening to the previous episode as it will put the content of what megan shares with us shortly into a much clearer context as well as being an independent artist megan is also a lecturer in art and design creative technology and photography at the university of salford which is based in the northwest of england her own work tells the story of power and survivorship told through a continuous narrative of judgment, death and rebirth, and her work is influenced by patterns in history, sociology and psychoanalysis with language at the heart of her creativity. In the previous episode, we learnt about Megan's traumatic childhood experiences, which, at various stages, inspired and encouraged her love of various art forms. In this second part of my interview with her, we find out about her experiences of studying at the Royal College of Art in London and a random attempt on her life, which, incredibly, she turned into a multimedia exhibition in Manchester. I've used photographs from this exhibition as the profile pictures for both episodes, with Megan's express permission. Throughout the discussion, you will also gain ideas on how you can develop your own creative skills. It's important to highlight, though, that in this episode, we discuss some distressing themes. If you're affected by any of the topics discussed in today's episode, I've placed some support links in the show notes. Let's continue our amazing journey with Megan Powell. So, in the previous part, we were talking about you, your journey through. You got your degree, you got the first, which was fantastic. Um, you started the teaching qualification, but then you went on to do an MA. Yeah. So, I like, tell us a bit about that journey then.
1: So, I mean, part of me was like, I'll apply to the World College of Art, they'll say no. And then I'll think of another plan. <laughs> I was in the waiting room, waiting for my interview with a guy that had gone to Eton. And I just thought, oh, my God, this is so not my world. I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, And the uh, Royal
0: College of Art is in London.
1: Is yeah, it? it's in South Kensington. It's now moved to Battersea. There's some of it's in Battersea now. But then it was like South Kensington. And it was, yeah, it was... Yeah, it was incredible. I've, I think there was some sort of like mythology about it, and I, I would speak to other people about this, that almost like you'd expect Disney dust to, to fall on you and you'd, you know, it, it wasn't like it made you into a successful artist, like obviously, because I'm not a famous successful artist. But what I did gain was, you know, I, the education was incredible. The theoretical basis and understanding that I had, we studied psychoanalysis with photography, um, the lecturers just were beyond measure, like particularly like Rubleys Luxembourg and Sarah Jones, who were such an incredible influence on me and made me understand my work in a really different way. The visiting lecturers, and I'm still really good friends with a lot of the people that I studied with who right. continue to influence me. What was difficult is being working class, having no full-back structure and having to make money. Right. While she were there.
0: So how did you cope with that?
1: So I worked at the Royal College of Art Bar, which I made other friends there, which was great. And then I worked... So I worked um, as a video editor and TV production assistant. Um, some of it was editing porn. Um, I worked for a show called The International Sexy Ladies Show. I was the only female editor. It was... <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> it was an experience. Um, but
0: probably paid quite well I It paid imagine, pretty <laughs> well, yeah, it was
1: good it was, it, was, it was like, and also I could choose my own hours I could kind of like turn up to the to the editing suite in so in uh, Wardour Street it was mm. uh, and I could, yeah, as long as I logged my hours I could work whenever, so I could leave for a lecture and then come back I worked for a clothes exchange store in Chelsea um, I worked in a, a bar in Dalston and um, yeah, I just had so many, like, lots of different roles and jobs, and it was a juggling act. Wow. Yeah. But my, my work changed significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that that structure of having lectures and seeing so many different things and being explained, you know, having so many different theoretical models that you're introduced to, and then having crits each week and seeing people from all around the world explain them, their work in such diverse... It was such... It was such a pleasure. I'm so grateful of it. The friends that I still talk to from that from from at my year group, we always say because now we're all lecturers and we go, "Oh my God, we can really see just how incredibly lucky we were to receive that level mm. of education." Mm. You know, Look, I also did an internship for in at the same time, so I could just had so many things happening.
0: So how many things did you were you juggling? Jobs were you juggling at the time then?
1: At one point, I had five different jobs wow. in a full-time MA. I lived in this place that was almost like a legalized squat. There was wires coming down from the ceiling. There was a silverfish infestation. There was—it was—it was definitely not legal the way that it was, but it was quite—it was cheap, so we could afford it. <laughs> you know, like money was like such a battle. Um, And then, yeah, after graduation, I got a job uh, teaching for an international school set up by Central St. Martins. So that gave me a bit of breathing space.
0: Yeah. So (coughs) from the MA then, let's talk about your own artwork and, and that. So what sort of exhibitions, what did you put on? What did you learn from all of that educational experience?
1: I think I learnt how to apply my theory to my work in a much more kind of sophisticated way, even though I was, like, reading Lacan within my BA and I was really fascinated. um, I think because I had, you know, there'd been issues with mental health in my family that once I really started seriously learning psychoanalysis, I was like, oh, my God, this is a structure. I can understand it. So it kind of made the chaos of that Translate into, into something more structured. And I was always obsessed with wanting to find a pattern to something so I could, in something tangible, so the irrational and the chaos could become something that was more legible and like clarity because they you know, the whole of my upbringing was so unclear and confusing that I liked the rigidity of structures. <laughs> my final piece was called New Articulations of Old and Sundry. And it was actors playing out um, recordings from psychics that I'd been to see. Right. And it was a, um, a female protagonist who was basically being coached by a male m- mentor into learning language.
0: And what medium were you using? <clears throat> video.
1: I shot it with false, backgr- false projection backgrounds or with, like, a rehearsal space um, at the moving image studio which was incredible it was this massive building that you could like professionally film I had actors come in to do it I wrote scripts it was about different streams of language which you have to cipher through and decide on how to individuate and how to how to attempt to self-actualize and the power dynamics that are that, that can be seen within that. Um, so I did that, I did some work about bees again, because I'd started making work about bees in like 2005. Uh, we had an exhibition at Wollstone Home Projects as part of the Liverpool Biennial in 2010, curated by Morgan Quintance. I'd figured out on my BA this way of making work, of making very different pieces of work, and trying to fit them together. Mm. so th- So it was nonsensical. Yeah, so mm. kind of looking at rigidity of, of art mediums and structures and style and sensibility, and then piecing them together.
0: Yeah, you mentioned about bees as well because bees is a, a, they focus a lot in your work. Yeah. You, you, you fo- Why? What? What's the the thing about bees that has attracted you to that in the art that you produce?
1: Initially, it was something quite unconscious. My experience of being in Spain on Erasmus was such a sense of belonging for me, that you know, there was such a great community with the other students, that when I came back that summer, I was like really, almost like a, a bit heartbroken to be back in Manchester. I was a little bit like, oh God, that, that amazing thing's over and I've got to go back to waitressing
0: and... Because you were, you didn't have to work when you were out yeah. in Spain.
1: Yeah, and I had to waitress all that summer on the lead-up. You know, I'd not really seen anyone for quite a while. I didn't know who my friendship... Well, I did know who my friendship groups were, but it's like reintegrating yourself into mm. life. Um, and I kept on seeing dead bees on the floor. I think I must have been walking with my head down, looking at the pavement, and I kept on seeing dead bees everywhere, and I started collecting them. In parts and Was there, this in
0: Spain? No, in, 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 in Manchester, Manchester when okay. I got
1: back. And then I remember there being lots of reports on Radio Four. I was listening to a lot of Radio Four at the time saying that bees were dying out. And I think basically this was like within the the time frame of the Iraq war. And I remember thinking at the time, wouldn't it be interesting if our apocalypse came from something so tiny and seemingly innocuous as a bee? Mm then from all the conflicts that are happening it was
0: quite a metaphor really wasn't yeah. it for what was going on
1: and that and i and i felt like our attentions weren't there um yeah so then i started working with the national beekeeping association at heaton park and it was something that i didn't really know what it was and i continued that a bit in my ma but also i was i became obsessed with language i'm still obsessed with language i'm obsessed with lots of different ways in which we can consider the world and what are the patterns between academic languages and what are the differences. Basically, I started looking at the language of the hive. Um, and I don't know if anybody, anybody who has, looked, who has been a beekeeper and been exposed to the hive will understand this, that it's absolutely mesmerizing. And lots of times when when you're there, y- you know, you can accidentally kind of keep the hive open longer than you should do, just because I. Like, the, the functionality of the hive. And because I like psychoanalytical ways of thinking, I thought that it was like a Winnicottian safe base. I thought the structure and the coordination and the collaboration between between the hives and the individuals was something really interesting. Wow. So then I would interview lots of different people. So I inter- began like, interviewing beekeepers, but then I would get and um, biologists and different scientists but then I would get different theorists to translate those things. So if you talk to a psychoanalyst about the language of the bees, um, speak to a priest, speak to a spiritualist, um, speak to a social worker, who mainly used to work, you know. Was, yeah, I was talking to kind of um, sociologists and social workers. To, yeah, to really kind of like dissect what, what linguistically that, that could mean.
0: So how do you then turn that into an art form? from all that research that you've done and speaking to all those different people, how do you then get that out into a art form, sort of into a medium?
1: So I would make films, short films. I would have lots of writing. I mean, eventually that project, once I had left London and came back to Manchester, turned into an Arts Council um, grant. And there was a documentary narrated by Maxine Peake, which went into... All the all of these things. So all those interviews, yes, become part of the script. I think I'm more interested in the process of making work than I am with any outputs that I do. In fact, I feel quite disappointed when I have to have an exhibition. It like, I I feel very ambivalent, and I'm more interested in in yeah what what is discovered during process.
0: It's got a lot of parallels with musicians in that form where, you know, the creative and making the album, for example, is the best part of it. And then once the album's out there, you just want to move on. Yeah. And as soon bit. as I
1: make a piece of work, I'm not interested in it. Interesting. I'm not. And I always I hate an exhibition. An exhibition opening is like the most painful experience because <sighs> I instantly reject it once it's there. I experience great ambivalence with it. I don't want, because it it feels like an untruth for me. But would it
0: not be celebratory at the moment that your exhibition's there to think, look what I've achieved?
1: I mean, it can be that for other people. (laughs) 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 For me, not so much. No, I don't enjoy it, I don't like it. There's very few pieces of work that, I'd say maybe out of like over 20 years of making work, maybe I've got five pieces at a push. That I'm like, that's nearly there. Yeah. The rest of it is like, but I can, the process of it, I'm like, yes, I really enjoyed that. Mm.
0: Yeah. yeah. How do you decide um, the type of medium to use, whether it's going to be a video, whether it's going to be photography, and blend a bit of mixed media? How do you make that decision?
1: Um, when I was younger, really intuitively, like, I intuitively felt how it should be. In fact, I was just speaking to my friend Johnny Briggs about this, who's also an artist, much more successful than me. It felt like I was making work when I was younger, but I didn't understand it. And only now am I, like, retroactively understanding what that was and how it fits in and how it makes sense. And I think there are lots of different ways in which you can make and consider your work. That kind of very unconscious intuitive approach is is really valid, but we can reject it if we don't know the full meaning or understanding of it, when actually that can come much later with experience. So it's sometimes, you know, it's, it can be detrimental to have to speak about things that we don't yet realize. It's a little bit how the experiences of your life retroactively activate into new significances in the present day, mm. you know. If you have an argument with your mother when you're a teenager, if you then have your own teenage daughter, that argument will mean something different because you've, you've inhabited those both
0: positions. You're sitting in the other chair, aren't you? Yeah. Head, yeah.
1: And that happens with your artwork. Yeah. That actually the significance of what you've made at that time retroactively becomes something else on top of more work that you make. Mm. And I think that's really important to kind of be mindful of what you're making now might not be apparent to you, but the significance, you know, it's really important to be patient with yourself. Mm. You don't have to be all things. Some students that I'm just like, oh my God, they are such amazing photographers, but maybe they don't know what it means yet. And that is fine. That is absolutely perfect for now because give it 15 years it will mean something totally different mm. you know but focus on what that strength is don't don't stop taking images because you don't understand the greater significance of your work yet mm. artwork is iterative it will repeat on you and every time it repeats it will gain a new significance and mean something very different mm. and that's what maturity is that's what aging is
0: what first drew me to um, our discussion today was when I saw the BA students' exhibition in the summer. Ah. within you know, On the seventh or eighth floor, whatever it was of the building that we're in now. And the difference in the work, although that was work that they had submitted for their portfolio and they'd be marked on, the difference in the, in the work and the approach mm. was was just amazing.
1: I think that's something... So. I like critical like psychoanalysis because it tells you about how you individuate or so how you become an ind- individual, mm-hmm. how you gain language in order to understand your individuality, how you go through maturation stages, how this is a really difficult process. This is why, you know, teenagers are chaotic because you're in the midst of very difficult maturation stages and this is universal for everybody. Mm-hmm. But actually. Those patterns of what maturation, individuation is, gaining language, understanding what is yours and what is other people's, that's what artists go through. Mm. They're trying to say, well, who am I as an artist or a creative person in the world? Where do I place myself? And that can be one of the hardest challenges. Mm. especially if you have a student who's doing something really unique and it can't be coined yet mm. actually the more that you don't understand what you're doing in some cases the more individual it is the better it is because it means that if you can't find a placement for it that's something super unique
0: mm. So an exhibition that you had that was called Get Stamped and Boogie and I'm intrigued about <laughs> the title and how did, what inspired that?
1: Um It was a personal experience. So a year after I graduated from the RCA, I was randomly attacked by three men and stabbed in the face, Mm -hmm. um, which was an attempted murder case. I was stabbed a millimetre away from my eye and it went into the side of my face. I had a reconstructive surgery on my face and going to witness protection, because it was by a gang. Yeah, so it was that. I think, like, basically, at the time that it happened, my friends were around me like a vacuum, which was incredible. When I had to have the surgery on my face, which saved my eye, saved my life. Um, When I was uh, discharged from hospital, um, I was staying... I was living with my friend, Graeme Clayton Chance, at the time, and my friend, Damien Callaghan, came to stay with me. And I got drunk, which was very stupid because you're not supposed to have anesthetic and drink. And I got them to photograph me dancing with the face cast on. And then I didn't touch that work for years. I I, I wanted to document myself in this kind of like, I mean, it was unconsciously defiant because I wasn't really thinking what that would be. But what I did do is I documented my face constantly throughout that process. So from the day the attack happened right through to healing, um, I got other people, or I documented my face. Uh, And, and, you know, I'm exceptionally lucky. Like the doctor said to me, I do not understand how you're not blinded or dead. So to come out of it without really a scar or anything, it's, yeah, it it was a miracle. But then I think with the rise of the Me Too Movement and what that was, I, I, I got really cu- curious about what a survivor narrative is, and because also I I'd come from a very violent upbringing, I was a little bit like, oh God, this again. What what is it that keeps on repeating? Uh, why has violence been so prevalent in my life? Like what? Um, and then I thought, God, I just don't want. I didn't want to have any of the survivor narratives available. I felt like oh, I, did, I didn't want to attach to and I wanted to explore it in a different way. So um, it was at paper gallery, which is now closed down. I basically thought what if I approached this situation like disco, <laughs> like the disco movement. I used to go to horse meat disco all the time on a Sunday night I loved that movement. And actually like what is really interesting about disco is that it has a really kind of rebellious history it began as kind of anti-nazi protest music in world war Two, it then kind of as it navigated towards new york it mixed with afro beats lots of disco music even though it has this kind of really happy sensibility about it is talking about the lgbtqia plus community and for civil rights as well it was a place that where anyone who felt otherized could Play together within this like era of glamour. So I wanted it to be like that. So the work was reusing these images, these snapshots of me play, you know, like right, dancing. And I uh, threw glitter over it all. Use glitter paper. Had things printed really cheaply. So I wanted this lo-fi DIY way about it. I didn't really want it to be with any. Um, So basically, because the Royal College of Art was basically like a finishing school, Mm. but I felt like that type of like finished, polished way of making work didn't align with my story. Like, I'd come from a very feral past, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so I wanted to have these kind of like quite dynamic but lo-fi ways of, of working. Had a picture of me where I'm looking directly at the camera printed on like an advertising banner, like the same sort of like banner that would be on a roundabout and so that says happy mm. birthday Linda you know that sort so of the, like she's vi- the vinyl final. yeah, yeah. Um, I put disco lights in there and I made a playlist like I wanted to undermine myself mm-hmm. yeah I wanted to kind of un- undermine myself and undermine what that was I mean yeah so there was disco lights going around the images um, there was lots of images there was images of a nun that I'd taken there were kind of some staged images there that my friend Fiona Um, posed for, I was looking at that very kind of like cliche trope of Madonna whore because they'd called me a white whore basically and it it was like a process measure and I think, yeah, the playlist, I wanted it to be silly, like boogie's such a silly word, just, (laughs) I wanted it to be like absurd and ridiculous well
0: that's what caught my attention was there's just the, the you know get stabbed and boogie it's like what is that about yeah and it really draws you in
1: and and it's interesting so I, I think i you know like talking about that like at the time that i was doing it yes i was interested about well how do you carve your own way with your own survivor narrative most things in life that are really hard that are really difficult stages for you are also kind of ridiculous as well. There's such an absurdity, and that's where dark humour comes in, that we're able to kind of twist those things, and that's also how you gain power in disempowering situations, to be able to apply those perspectives. I mean, at the time that I did that exhibition, I didn't, I just left one therapist and hadn't yet arrived at the next. So that was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. Anyone who is doing that sort of personal work should definitely be within a therapeutic relationship that they really trust and have that really safe base of a psychodynamic where you can exercise these things. Because when I did start seeing my current therapist who I've been with now for I think nearly four years, who's incredible, um, he, he said that was a manic defense. And I was like, yeah, that's really interesting. It was a money defense and it wasn't safe for me to do. Even though now when I look back, I think it's my favorite exhibition because it was just so frivolous and ridiculous and I wasn't precious about the work. So that was one exhibition and piece of work actually that I did that I didn't cringe at. Everything else makes me cringe.
0: How was it received?
1: I think it was received quite well. I don't think I was really doing it to be received. It wasn't in a good way, I don't think. I think it was important, but I think what it was, it was a projected fantasy. I wanted the fantasy of me surviving an attempted murder with grace, with like, like it was easy, like nothing touched me, like I was superhuman, which was not the case. Like I was a mess. (laughs) You know, I got put in witness protection. I didn't have a family that I could go stay with. It basically was like me being back in the care system again and I was like, great, here again. And I had to start afresh, you know. I had panic attacks all the time. I would go blind. My health was doing crazy. It was just such an awful thing. So to have a projected fantasy that is disco, like, oh God, that was so easy. Look at me, I just breezed through it. That is such an appealing thing to want to, as for a narrative tone, That's a, you know, that projected fantasy is how you want others to see you. Mm. In actual fact, it's not the case. There was a much more messy, convoluted, not okay healing process. Mm. And I think for anyone who goes through those sorts of things, patience is so important. I think lots of times we want to be seen like, oh no, I'm fine, I've dealt with that. Look at my resilience when it's like, no, like you're allowed to be a mess, be Mm. a mess you know, give yourself grace I think, because I worked for Rape Crisis after that and we looked at the patterning of like there was something in our culture that basically said if you'd gone through awful attacks that you had to be successful to make sense of that, like there was a binary like you have to be Beyonce if you've been through abuse and it's like, no you have to just learn to get up that day and brush your teeth if you're able to That's the only thing you have to do. Let's start it small. Let's stop putting expectations on survivors and let everybody carve their own path with it because there's so many things of like, you're celebrated if you become successful and you've been through something now. That's really toxic. Mm. Me Too is great that it's happened, but there's also, we need to consider the language of which we speak to survivors with. Um, The police kept on saying to me, you're a good victim. And I thought, oh, that is so awful. And I just thought of all the I thought of all the people that they would consider not good victims and thought this is disgusting. I do not want to be part of this narrative because I know exactly what you're doing. I'm a good victim because you think I'm middle class because I've just been to the Royal College of Art. I'm white. And like all of these horrible things, like the, the undertones of racism that I exper- experienced with them I was like the London Met I thought this is awful and I don't want to be connected to this
0: Mm. there's a whole mix of unconscious bias there yeah
1: Yeah. so much Mm. so much that is still happening today like I feel really awful the fact that other women and trans women would have gone through the same thing as me and would have been treated differently because I didn't that experience was horrendous for me so think about all those other people what how have they been treated it's it there's so there's so much bias still in culture Mm. there there is and we think that we've made all these headways but I think it's, it's just the beginning
0: yeah There'll be lots of people listening to this, amateur creatives, for example, <laughs> um, You know, that we have uh, media available to us. You know Everybody's a photographer because they've got a smartphone. For somebody who wants to break out into the creative arts world and, and make a success of it, what, I know it's a general question, but what advice would you give them?
1: Depends the reasons for why you're doing it. If you want to make money, trying to be an artist is a silly way to do it. You know, it's usually that there's some other drive. You you have other drives there, other reasons for doing it. And that should be your focus. You know, become conscious and congruent and self-aware with what your process is, what you're trying to do. I think that congruence in your work is the absolute kind of number one thing. And then find a comfortable position with it. How do you like to make? Why are you making? How do you do it? What joy do you get from that process? Yeah, and then there's lots of streams you could do. I mean, degrees are a great, still a great way forward. You know, traditional educational systems, they do still work. I mean, they're starting to fall apart, I think. If I think if we stay with this government, they'll fall apart. Um, but then there's lots of organizations in which you can do things with. It's interesting because Creativity is really innate in us, We, you know, this cave paintings, mark making, it's something that's completely innate. But then we try to put this kind of idea of commercialization and economy to it, and sometimes those things don't mix.
0: Megan, thanks ever so much for spending that time and, and your honesty and just, you know, you have sort of bearing your soul really, <laughs> oh, but, which has influenced the, math, you know, the, the great work that you've done. I've got one final question that I ask all of my guests, uh, and that is, knowing what you know now, after all of that experience, what one piece of advice would you give that younger self, perhaps, you know, that Megan that was in the care home?
1: Yeah, oh God. I do think you learn things as you're meant to learn them. But I think I would have wanted to be able to focus on, my, on myself more. Like, when I was younger, I used to think that I was a response object and that I was only there to have to help other people. So I would constantly give my energy away to others rather than learn self-care, which is, like, everybody should definitely learn positive selfishness. Learn self-care, put yourself first, Um, but also power. I think lots of... All my work now is about language and power, and I think when you go through lots of disempowering situations, to learn how to use power ethically is like one of the greatest things that you can learn. So how to be in your power and to be, you know, it sounds like a meme, doesn't it? But kind of like kind with it, like you don't, I'm, you know, I make mistakes all the time. I'm not trying to say that I don't, but I think that there's something really important in my lifetime that I've had to learn about power that I'm still learning, Mm -hmm. but I wish I would have not been so destabilised by other people's power imbalances with me when I was younger. Yeah, I, I, I would have maybe got further than, I, than I've got if I would have learned that sooner, maybe.
0: Megan Powell, thank you very much.
1: <laughs> All right, thank you.
0: <laughs> I'm sure you'll understand, having listened to both episodes, why I could not distill Megan's story down into 30 minutes. Putting aside all the inspirational advice and guidance that Megan shared in the interview, what we also had here was a master class in resilience. I can't personally begin to imagine how I would deal with an attempt on my own life, let alone revisit it through an art form. How do you feel about that? However, I was interested to learn about her attitude to the launch of an exhibition, which is very similar to some of the reactions I've had from the songwriters I've interviewed. Once your latest work is out there in the public domain, you want to move on to something else. The difference with musicians, though, especially songwriters, is that they need to stay attached to this work for some time through touring in order to bring in an income. Even though they may simultaneously be creating their next magnum opus whilst they're out on the road. Huge thanks go from me to Megan for her honesty, openness and mentorship in what turned out to be a hugely engaging two episodes. As mentioned at the start, if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in my interview with Megan, I've placed links to relevant support helplines in the show notes. Here's a spoiler alert, folks. My next guest will also be a two-part interview, but on a completely different theme. If you're enjoying these episodes, please follow the series wherever you get your pods, if you haven't already done so, and do review the Mac catalogue if you're new to the series. Please also share them with anyone whom you think will gain benefit from the content. You can leave feedback about the episode through social media by searching for Half Hour Mentor or via the email link in the show notes. I'd love to know what you think of these episodes, so please do get in touch. Thanks for listening and until next time, bye for now.